continue reading this morning from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 12 through 26. Now during those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who, was, who became a traitor. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They'd come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him, and it healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, reveal your word to us this day that we might have life in your name. Amen. The names, places, and events that appear in the written testimony of the gospel matter. They are not meaningless details, nor are they merely placeholders in an otherwise generic story, but rather denote the social, historical, and ethno-cultural particularities of God's own unique self-disclosure in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is the eternal Son of God called Christ is in no way minimized by the fact that Jesus was also a poor, first-century Palestinian Jew from the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee and Judea, a colonized region under the foreign occupation of the Roman Empire. God was in this Christ, this Jesus, reconciling the world back to God's own self. Thus the proclamation of the gospel really is a scandal, as Paul reminds us in the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians 
Although Paul does not allude to the scandal of Jesus as a means of calling into question the efficacy of God's victory in and through him, but rather to underscore the strangeness of the good news on which salvation rests. The peculiar claim that both the truth of God and the truth of the human person have come together as one in the historical reality of the person of Jesus Christ necessitates the reversal of many of our own presuppositions, the dislocation of wisdom and certainty, and the relocation of where and with whom the truth of God ultimately resides. Not among the wealthy, not among the powerful, not among those whose weapons and decisions seek to move the levers of society, but among the crucified and the colonized, the downtrodden and oppressed, all of those whose names have not been deemed worthy enough to remember. It is foolishness, Paul tells the people of Corinth. And it is nothing less than the power It is in keeping with the significance of such details that we, in today's reading from Luke's Gospel, are introduced to three unique casts of characters, each of whom plays an important role in shaping our understanding of what Jesus does and later goes on to say. The first grouping that Luke mentions in chapter 6 are the disciples. And you will notice through a close reading that Luke is here referring to all who have begun following Jesus during his ministry. We do not know how many this entails, nor do we know their names. But here in verse 17, suffice it to say, there is a great crowd of them, women and children and men from throughout the region of Galilee who have heard and seen it for themselves all the many wonders and magnificent words of this one who said, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. It is to these in particular that Jesus directs his words in today's reading. The second grouping made by the gospel writer concerns those about whom Jesus spent the night in prayer, petitioning with God for clarity and direction that he might call out 12 from among his disciples and name them apostles, meaning sent ones. These are the ones whose names we know. A familiar band of misfit men from every walk and way of life who would surround Jesus during his ministry, to whom he would confide, who would abandon him at the moment of his arrest, but to whom he would later give instructions through the Holy Spirit following his resurrection. The third grouping of Luke in chapter 6 is that of the multitude, a great many people coming from throughout the region of Judea, all the way from the southern city of Jerusalem to the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon, north of Judea, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. All of these, again, are Roman colonies, conquered territories that were governed not by the people themselves, but by the outside reach and influence of Caesar, who 
who ruled as one both to be feared and to be praised. And Jesus' life and ministry, characterized by the inauguration of God's reign upon the earth, are both an implicit and explicit critique of the Roman imperial regime. Also significant is that these are places where Jesus has yet to travel since his ministry began. Thus the people have come to the site of today's reading only by the reach of Jesus' reputation. Luke's mention of the geography here is not merely an attempt to communicate where the people are from, but also how far they have traveled, as well as the peoples and places and cultures to whom they will return with a story to tell, whose peoples and places and cultures and all of the rich beauty of their own diverse particularities will also soon become the sites of the kingdom of God. For indeed, these are towns and cities in which the message of Jesus will soon ring true in the lives of those who have come, longing not only to hear the words of Jesus, but to be healed. And when they touched him, the gospel writer tells us, power came out from him and they were healed. Now, the word that Luke uses to describe the people's touching of Jesus is an important one, for it denotes not only one's physical proximity, but also implies a kind of kinetic transferal of energy. Something happens to the people when they touch Jesus and when Jesus touches them. Life does not stand still, but is interrupted. There is a change that takes place. In one sense, the word being used here refers to the experiential process of illumination, the dynamic kindling of light and flame, as in the striking of a match, the starting of a fire, or the flipping of a switch. And here we too remember the words of John the Baptist who said of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The illusion of the Spirit's energy in relation to the healing touch of Jesus also helps us to better understand the other sense contained in Luke's touch word in verse 19, that of conveying a blessing. That is, the bestowal of divine favor upon another that Luke would characterize Jesus' ministry using the language of blessing in anticipation of his sermon on the Beatitudes further indicates the truth of the living word that is being revealed. For Jesus' words in today's reading are in no way concealed for hearing by a select few. And though his words are directed to his disciples, they're also made public for anyone with ears to hear his message. What is more, as we have just read, Jesus' words are not first spoken, but rather demonstrated through the healing ministry of the Spirit among the crowds who are gathered. Thus, we might say that Jesus' ministry is not simply the embodiment of his message, but that Jesus' message is the description 
of who he is and what he does. In other words, it is Jesus who reveals and so determines the nature, character, and scope of the kingdom of God, or to say it even more directly, the word of the gospel is not just something that Jesus says, it is Jesus himself. All that Jesus says and does are necessarily reflections of who he is as the living word of God. If we are to interpret Jesus' words in today's reading in light of his incarnation, ministry, death, and resurrection, then in doing so, we too begin to glimpse the implications for those who are his hearers. It is surely difficult to avoid or to overlook that Jesus' beatitudes highlight many of the root causes of oppression in society the great chasm that is ever wide between the rich and the poor, the hungry and those who have plenty, of the many who suffer at the expense of a privileged few and of those whose lives are disregarded by others who seek to maintain the status quo. Anticipating a range of socioeconomic conditions by those in the great crowd of Jesus' disciples, we too can expect that not everyone was encouraged by Jesus' words. In fact, the seeming popularity of Jesus' ministry in Luke 6 may very well cloud for us the overwhelming unpopularity of what he had to say for anyone content to preserve the way things are. But by calling attention to the here and now conditions of inequity, Jesus remains faithful to the content of the sermon he preached to the people in his hometown in Nazareth when he declared, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here again in chapter 6, Jesus declares that God not only hears the cries of the many who suffer want and injustice, but that God resides in the midst of that suffering. But to further understand the meaning of Jesus' words, it is necessary also to clarify what these words do not mean. The poor are not blessed because they are poor, but because the kingdom of God belongs to them. The hungry are not blessed because they are hungry, but because God will see to it that they are cared for. Those who weep are not blessed because of their tears, but because there is joy in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And those who suffer hatred are not blessed by their abuse, but because their destiny will be like that of him who died and rose again. In fact, the overall trajectory of mistreatment in verse 22 from disregard and segregation to public shame and dehumanization precisely brings to mind the cruelty of Jesus' own arrest and crucifixion. So much so that what it seems we are reading in these verses is not a series of ethical principles but a summary of the gospel itself and a testament to the faithful love and promises of God to reside with those whose lives 
have been unjustly criminalized and to draw near to all who suffer from the lack of daily bread. Bearing in mind that Jesus' words are directed toward his disciples, we necessarily hear him speaking also to the church, not as those who have been given authority over the gospel, but in order that the gospel might have authority over us. For we who place our trust in the life, death, and resurrection need not the Beatitudes to understand the true cost of following Jesus. And yet we too, much like the hearers in today's reading, find ourselves no less betwixt and between the ways of the world and its ambitions, the enticement to power and its abuse, the lure of money and its injury, the destruction of lands and its consequences, temptations for many to ignore the sources of our privilege and advantage because to discover the truth would be inconvenient to the familiarity of our way of life. But these are not just earthly concerns, Jesus says. These are divine concerns. And thus, they ought to be the concerns of those who are known by my name, says our God. Because when we hear the voice of Jesus and consider only what we have to lose, then we have not fully heard the message of the gospel. For the voice of the one who summons us to rid ourselves of unjust gain is the very one who offers us new life in return. As the psalmist reminds us, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. That is why Jesus in today's reading tells those who suffer the defamation of their character on his account to leap with rejoicing. The word literally means an exuberant springing into motion. For the word is not only to be heard, it is also to be touched. It is also to be lived. It is also to be shared. So the psalmist says again, you who are righteous, rejoice and be glad. Sing out with joy all whose hearts are right. Why? Because faithful love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. And we can remember that we who have been set free from our former way of life are not given over into nothingness, but given over unto the freedom that is the righteousness of God, a righteousness that is not our own making, but the evidence of our allegiance to the one whose spirit has touched our lives with a healing love, alighting in us a passion for justice as a visible sign of the salvation that extends to the whole of creation. Thus the blessing in Luke chapter 6, 
is nothing less than the promise of the Spirit whose power in us is a fire of love that must not be quenched, but is able to consume every part of who we are until every part of who we are, like Jesus, becomes an embodiment of the kingdom of God. A future that Christ has given us both to live and to share and to touch both now and forevermore. Amen.